1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Bryce Bon Giovanni, your host, and today I'm talking to Erica Wortham, the author of the new book, Indigenous Media in Mexico Culture, Community, and the State, out from Duke University Press. Wortham's book examines the history and social and cultural ramifications of indigenous media production, especially indigenous video, in the Mexican states of Oaxaca and Chiapas during the 1990s. Erica, I'm so glad to have you with us.
0: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Oh. Uh, to start out with, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your academic background, and what got you interested in anthropology in general?
0: Sure. Well, um, I, I'm a bicultural person, a bicultural scholar. Um, I grew up and trained in my field here in the United States, but my mother's from Mexico, and I spent a lot of youth, a lot of my youth in Mexico. Um, so I'm fully bilingual, and I consider myself you know, sort of standing in between both cultures and places, as it were. Um, And I came to anthropology as an undergraduate at Columbia University. I took, I think this is not an uncommon story where you sort of jump into a field you don't really know too much about, and all of a sudden everything fires off and you begin to understand things in a way that just makes a lot of sense. And for me, anthropology really helped me, cultural anthropology, right, really helped me Kind of make sense of all the negotiating I'd done all my life between my very Anglo father and my Mexican mother. It just all kind of made sense in this very productive way. So I was totally hooked as a as a sophomore at Columbia, and I went on to pursue um, graduate studies after a little bit of a break at uh, at New York University. They had one of the better programs that combined cultural anthropology and some kind of media making. From an early period, I, I was interested in photography, you know, since high school, um, in sort of a journalistic type of photography, documentary photography. And while – at Columbia, I would rent, go downtown and take photography classes, um, and then incorporate that into my studies. It wasn't really offered at the school, but I sort of managed to make it work. So when I applied to graduate school, I was looking for a program that had both, and there there were a few at the time. There are more now, and and NYU had a really good one. It was it's called the culture uh, the program in culture and media now, although then it was I think the program in ethnographic filmmaking or something like that. So that's what drew me to NYU. Um, and anthropology had already been something I was, you know, very much committed to before then.
1: Right. So what made you interested in this particular subject of indigenous media in Mexico?
0: Um, well, indigenous media studies was just really taking shape when I started at NYU. Um, cultural anthropology as a discipline was coming out of this major moment of revision. Um, they t- they called it at the time a crisis of representation when practitioners as well as subjects began to question the representational authority of anthropologists, right? This idea of who can speak for whom was really buzzing around everywhere and people were rethinking it. Whereas in the world of ethnographic filmmaking, those kind of questions had already been going on. Um, and a lot of people that were using filmmaking in their research basically began to hand the camera over and sort of see what, you know, what happened, um, in, in the wake of that. Um, and one of the other big shifts that began to happen in anthropology you know, in this crisis period was that, we, that people began to realize you can't really consider these sort of traditional or small-scale cultures as if they were a part, you know, from sort of the larger world around them, somehow circumscribed and not a part of. And one of the things that changed is that they began to look— At media, right? Whereas before it was looked at the sort of thing that would taint a traditional portrait of a community, even though the televisions and the radios were there, sort of a a big turnaround. And they began to look at, well, what is the role of the television? And what is the role of radio? And then also, you know, when they began to be producers of radio, and producers of TV, then it became, it was possible to look at media making as a social practice. So that's, and that was all taking shape. Um, during my early years at um, at NYU, and because it combined this long-standing interest of mine in you know visual media, it was just sort of a, a natural. I gravitated towards it, and also I had been working at the National Museum of the American Indian in New York, in the Film and Video Center there. I was um, brought on board to sort of build the Latin American portion of the collection, as well as Latin American representation in the film festival that they do. So I was able to travel to Mexico and Bolivia, Peru and, you know, these different places to participate in these indigenous film festivals. So that just sort of was also a perfect dissertation topic. And, and I, I went for it. So I began to look at Mexico because of my own relationship with Mexico. Um, it's indigenous Mexico is not a part of Mexico that, That I was familiar with. In fact, it was a bit of a culture shock for my family in Mexico to understand why I was taking an interest in indigenous people. So that was um, sort of a learning curve for me, but one that, you know, I've been all the better for it. And just briefly, I'd like to thank Ken Whisaker, my editor at Duke University Press. Ken stuck by me while I developed the book over several years, and it was really a great experience working
1: with Duke. Right. So could you could give you us some, some context of what time period you're working with here, where you're working, and what the, the basic players in, in the story that you tell are?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, well, the time period is basically the '90s, um, and there was a lot of stuff going on. I mean, we're, we're, it's a, it was a time of the quincentenary, right? 500 years post after the after colonization or after the conquest, which was a very tumultuous time that required a lot of rethinking about the, you know how we interpret the conquest itself, as well as how indigenous people today fit into their nation states. Um, and Mexico was also going through a period of constitutional reform. that was was pretty big they they reformed one of the opening articles of their constitution that redefined Mexico as a pluricultural state um, which was historic really that they would recognize Indian people after you know 200 years of basically de-Indianizing them right that's a a phrase from a Mexican scholar Um, but also at the same time and Mexico was undergoing important economic restructuring towards neoliberalism, so in preparation for NAFTA, right, the big trade, uh, uh, trade agreement between, um, in North America between US Canada and Mexico. And they also changed articles of the Constitution that had previously safeguarded communal land holdings, which was basic which was sort of a basic resource for Indian people in Mexico. Uh, and so it was a big turn towards privatization. So at the same time that you have this recognition of their sort of the composition of Mexico as being Indian, you also have the economic restructuring to pull the rug out from under under the Indian populations, basically. So it was a time of a lot of interesting change. And then globally, you have the NGO sort of led development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for Indigenous people in particular. Um, And you have the um, International Labor Organization and their conventions that had a lot to do with Indigenous peoples, um, which they came close to recognizing the self-determination of Indian people. So it was sort of this confluence of a lot of changes that were really bringing the importance of of indigenous peoples of our hemisphere globally as well, but in particular our hemisphere into people's consciousnesses. Um, And this, and the video project in Mexico, I found it particularly interesting because um, they were sort of, they thought that they were kind of inventing this idea of, of indigenous video, even though, or indigenous media making, even though it had already been happening in different places, like in Australia and in Canada and Brazil. So it was a very kind of state, up, you know, top-down sort of project. Um, so I came in looking at it that way to look at so so how through media can we understand these renegotiation of relationships between Indian the Indian population and in particular Indian communities with the state of Mexico. That was kind of the the beginning of my series of questions.
1: To begin with, you talk about the. Uh, emergence in Mexico of the idea of indigenous video, indigenous media. Um, okay. And it's tied up, uh, interestingly enough, with the work of anthropologists and okay. particularly with an organization, uh, the Instituto Nacional Indianista, um, or INI, I-N-I. Um, and I wonder if you could, could tell us a little bit about the the history of that organization, what its goal was in promoting indigenous video up to this point.
0: Well, it it was kind of a mixed bag of goals that I tried to decipher a little bit in how I tell the story of Indigenous video in Mexico. Um, And by the way, I always like to make the point that um, when I say Vida Indígena was, in this case, was sort of a Mexican formation – it really exists all over Latin America, but in this particular case, because of the role that the state played in creating it, um, I can call it sort of a Mexican phenomenon. Right. But um, I just want to be careful with that—not that I'm claiming that it's the only place it exists. But in any case, um, so the INI was created as an institution in about I think 1948, so post-revolutionary Mexico, where they're trying to the uh, scholars are have reimagined what it means to be Mexican, and, and they. They have come up with this idea of el mexicano being an a mestizo, right? A mestizo person of mixed blood heritage. Um, but what happens is that they they begin to um, create assimilation policies that try and bring the sort of marginalized communities, which are all you know mostly indigenous communities, um, into the fold of modern Mexico. And by and by this they mean educating them and all, it, it, in sort of a national school system and also teaching them how to speak Spanish and Spanish only, preferably It's the typical horrible situation where children are chastised for speaking their native languages and they have to speak in Spanish in the schools. And, um, again, and this went on for decades and decades until through a very sort of critical crisis of their own, anthropologists began to realize this is not the right road to go down. We have to sort of trade in what we've been doing and begin to really, um, uh, devote these resources to cultural revitalization, right? To preserving these cultures, not to try and change them. And it was a very systematic way of saying, you know, what what what's good, right? What's good in quotes about these these cultures? Well, what happened here is that they were folklorized, right? And they're their, their manners of dressing and their dances and their their, their material production was celebrated as part of, part of an ethnic market that became an important part of Mexico's tourist industry as well as its identity. But their sociopolitical aspects of their culture was squashed, right? Um, their own forms of communal government, language, and, and social organization were, was not something that the government was interested in bringing along with the folkloric part. Um, and so that's, so INI, in that whole process, there's a word in Mexico for it, it's called indigenismo. Indigenismo is the basic assimilation policy of INI. Um, in 2004, um, with the entry of the first non, um, Pre-president of Mexico, so, so the pre had been the reign. It's actually the party in power now, but had been the reigning party in Mexico for seventy years. Lost for the first time, um, and ENI was dissolved, and now it's known as the CDI. Um, very similar kind of title, but it's about development of indigenous people. But a lot of the practices are the same. I think they've devoted more resources to infrastructure and less to these cultural programs. But um, so video comes in at a time when when there's a director of Eni who's really interested in making some big changes. You know, sort of the video program was called Transference of Audiovisual Media, and let's give audio media over to them, right? As well as the control of it, the power over the resources. And that lasted for a few years until the Zapatista uprising in nineteen ninety four. Um and they you know sort of retrenched and and, and retreated in their sort of transformational kinds of, of um, policies. But that's the moment that the video program takes flight but I try and explain um, how it happens in a very idiosyncratic matter with a group of teachers and, and video instructors that come from different places themselves. Some, you know, one was a professional editor. Some come with deep sort of social change commitments. Um, one was a, a, a filmmaking teacher. And so they come together and sort of teach what's going to be indigenous video. Um, and slowly that, that, be- it, be- it becomes apparent that what they're also teaching is a whole program sort of for social change that's not overtly and clearly articulated at the beginning. And that's why I have that chapter at the end to provide a, a contrast for how the revolutionary media is from the very beginning thought of as a program for social change. Whereas the ENU video was a little bit more about cultural rescate or rescue and cultural preservation, not so political. But given the historical context, it became very political.
1: And one part of uh, when you go from talking about the institutional uh, dimension of indigenous video to how it was actually adopted by the indigenous people who were being trained, who were learning to use video or being brought into workshops to use video. And they themselves demonstrate a couple of different attitudes towards video which you talk about in in your sort of examination of some of the groups that either came out of or were developed in response to the INE's uh, video program. Um, okay. could, you, could you talk a little bit about those, uh, um, the, uh, particularly the three groups you talk about as, as different examples of Indigenous uh, uh, uses of video kind of outside of the government's purview or beyond the state's interests?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um... Well the, the the primary group that I worked with, which is I talk about in that in that middle chapter, is is still one of the most important indigenous media producers in Mexico. They're called Ojo de Agua Comunicacion and they're in Oaxaca City. And I take their position or their description or even I can call it a definition of indigenous video sort of as a primary way to understand um their work as media, but also sort of their larger position, because in fact, they describe indigenous video as a postura, which is like a position or a stance, right? So it's, it's described as kind of an oppositional media, like, you know, this is who we are. And, and, and we're not the people that you see in commercial media or, you know, um, all these in the, all these other avenues, um, and then you have groups like the, uh, the Zapotec Video of group that um, took a very institu- anti-institutional stance from the beginning and wanted nothing to do with the kind of negotiated um, independence or autonomy that, that these other groups were, were, were dealing with, right? Because Video Indigena, as I describe it, came out of the state program, they had really nothing to do with it. So, but... But what they have in common is that they use the media to, um, as a tool for the communities to self reflect. And in that process of self-reflection, they realize that sort of their idea of culture goes through this sort of objectification process, or at least visual objectification, so that then it's something that can be defended in a different way um, and maybe more more towards the outside, um, which is also a process that you see that other people have narrated in other places, that sort of this reflection leads to defense of of culture, more defined sort of anthropological. Logically, really. Um, and then the, uh, the third group, Comunalidad, sort of are very oriented towards music production and radio. And they had a more regional kind of concept of trying to build, you know, sort of uh, consolidate all these different Zapotec communities in the Sierra with through radio, music and, and television production. Um, and they have a very prominent figure who's a well-known songwriter and performer in their group that still who's still around and still sort of is like a you know an anchor for their for their project that that project is still still going on as well so that their struggle was a struggle for radio and Eni had since 1979 a very broad radio program Program and in fact, I, I'd like to write more about the contrast between video and radio in in my future work, um, as I think there's there's a lot there that that is interesting to to think about. So their their avenue was more through radio, which is not unusual that a lot of these folks started with radio or incorporated some kind of radio into the video production process as well. Um, so there's so you have this regional focus, you have this anti-institutional. We don't want anything to do with the government. Let us develop our own idea. Um, and then you have ojoleawa that comes straight out of Eni's video center that they created in Oaxaca but over the years had to slowly disentangle themselves from the government in order to be able to do what they wanted to do and not be tied down by all these sort of bureaucratic problems
1: um, just as an aside um, yeah one thing that I, I noticed when I was reading this particular section of the book was that there's a uh, a common problem that seems to face all of these indigenous groups is is the simple problem of access to transmitters. Not necessarily mm-hmm. the video equipment, but the ability to actually uh, disperse their video or their radio, as the case may be, to people. Um, and could you you know describe sort of what you learned about the that sort of particular problem? Because I know, for example, in the case of the uh, the Shawn Collective uh, that you describe, they've had uh, you know very very intermittent ability to actually disseminate their video in some cases because they were very strongly opposed to being involved with the government in any way.
0: Right. Well, I think it actually continues to be a, a big problem. And and I'll, and I'll talk later about the online archive I want to create, which addresses that problem. Because, for example, again, to go back to radio for a second, ENI has um, indigenous radio stations. I think there's like 20 of them all over the country. Um, but for their video program, they never thought through a distribution um, program, right? Uh, which is kind of crazy considering the kind of resources they put into production, not to have some kind of, you know, I don't know, community access TV channel or film festival circuit or something thought, up, thought out for the dissemination. And I, I think one of the reasons why is that some of this video ended up being a little more compromising for the government than the radio programs um, generally were. But in any case, um, there are all kinds of really interesting stories. Like the story of, of Time weeks. They there was an abandoned television transmitter like by their by the secondary school, maybe a mile and a half down the road from the center of town, had been there since the '80s. Um, one of the big commercial television stations had put it there as a rebroadcasting system, because you know Oaxaca is very mountainous, and we're talking fairly big mountains. So the signals were having trouble coming over the mountains into these communities, but they never really got it going. So it had been sitting there abandoned, and they thought, well let's go check it out. And they did. And they scrambled up this incredibly high antenna sitting, you know, on this hilltop and plugged it in and got it going. It's, it's pretty simple technology really. Um, and they already had the video production component of it cause they had participated in any video production workshop. So it was just sort of, you know, local resources, you know, reappropriating something that was basically, you know, techno waste sitting in their backyard. Um, but, uh, and then there's regional um, screenings, which take a lot of human resources to, to make happen. You know, we're talking sometimes driving for hours, walking for hours, putting projectors and screens and equipment on mules and getting into some remote communities to show some of this work. I mean, that might be, you know, maybe not the most common. But um, in order to distribute some of this work, it, it definitely, you know, is something that would need a lot more attention um, and was never very well contemplated in the, in the program. They do it, you know, a lot of times just with using all kinds of their own resources. Um, and, I, and I narrate a bunch of that in the book. But it definitely continues to be a challenge for this work to be seen. And it's funny how sometimes it's easier to see it from where we are, right, at these international film festivals and that kind of thing, or in cities. But in, for, the, for the constituents themselves... Sometimes they don't have as much access to it, which is kind of ironic.
1: Tell us a little yeah. bit more about, uh, about Tamix because I think that's the, the most interesting of all the particular uh, uh, video-related groups that you study. And they have a, they have a somewhat unique position, both in, in what they're doing and also uh, sort of ethnically. So could you tell us a little bit more about them and their particular context?
0: Sure, um well, I also spent the most time when I was doing my research in their village i i um, i won I chose in some cases, I chose that because because um, they had the television broadcasting going on, and I thought that was particularly interesting that they were able to you know broadcast their work so that 's where I focus a lot of my personal time. Um, and it, it turned out to be very fruitful because we can move in from indigenous studies to critical indigenous studies in the sense that we're not just looking at, you know, wow, this is cool, this is going on, but looking at also how complex and problematic it is. So once you take this top-down government program that teaches people how to use video and plunk it in the communities and watch how it works and doesn't work, then you begin to see a whole nother layer of of how indigenous media, you know, how it works, so to speak. Um, and in this case, you have a group of individuals that were already very focused on cultural programs in their community. Um, these were folks that had gone outside their community to finish high school, and sometimes they got more education and, and were teachers, right? So they were involved in education. They were involved in trying to get people to, to think and react and, and appreciate you know, their history and their culture. Um, and they started off with uh, just sort of community like races and programs for kids and all kinds of and things like that to um, doing the video workshop. And they were also doing radio as well for a, a, a nearby ENI radio station. They would record radio programs and send the tapes to the radio station and would broadcast in their area. Um and so – and then they have the sort of the fortuitous accident of finding the, the transmitter. And so they ha, they were able to – I think the, the the radius of their transmission was only about five kilometers. And it would bust through the signal of TV Azteca, which is a commercial radio station uh, – TV station that arrived in town. So people were watching their soap opera. And all of a sudden, they see these two primary school teachers on the hilltop, like, you know, on their televisions in their, in their homes. So it was a very uh, – you know, interesting story that way. That happened in 1992 before I did my research. But so when I got there, they were sort of at the end of a decade of producing media in the community, and there were all kinds of problems now because um, I think that when they taught, when they were taught about media production and video, um, it wasn't set up in a way that was going to be. Um, imbricated into the social life of the community very well, you know, as it, it should have been, I think a little bit of a slower process where the community gets to understand what, what video production is because people wouldn't get the fact that they were getting these MacArthur Rockefeller, um, fellowships to produce a video which is a ton of money and and it would go into a 20 minute video it's like where'd everything go right they and and still today in they when they reflect on their 10 years of media production which they're doing now and sort of in a documentary they're making they, they still talk about that about how it's not concrete like restoring a chapel or building a new section of the road right they don't understand they, they weren't able to make in their community understand how the resources were spent or how valuable it is to have these documents of their own history. Um, so all that was going on while, while I was there um, and actually I was there during the last year of their, of the television production, the transmitter ended up breaking down, but also the, the community authorities basically said, you know what you guys are done. We, you know, I think their process wasn't as transparent as it should have been. And they sought to make it a part of community life. In these communities, you have fairly regimented and organized um, community service positions, um, and including sort of like the band, for example. The municipal band is part of these rotating responsibilities that the municipal authority has. And video could have possibly been brought in as another aspect of their cultural life, sort of their official cultural life, but it wasn't. Um, and when Eni created the program, they didn't think through that part of it, right? And so even though these videos represent sort of a, the collective of a community, a lot of times they're made by two or three people, right? And so associated with that is a lot of, um, you know, not unfamiliar kind of jealousies, right, of, you know, how come you get these resources? And, and, and by the way, where are those resources? Um, and the rest of us don't, you know? So it wasn't really fleshed out in 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 the community as well as it should have been, unfortunately. But what stands is an incredible archive of material that they have, and that they're they've just now started to digitize, and they're creating a documentary of their you know decade of media production, um, and and it's really. Do you, do you want to ask a different question, or should I keep going? Um, well, that I
1: guess my my question, uh, <laughs> yeah, about that is. Looking at these, uh, when you describe some of the videos that they made, they seem to focus on on specific kind of either communal activities or cultural elements that are being presented as kind of integral to the culture of this particular village or of um, this particular ethnic group. And in this book, you're talking about a kind of video that is coming out of anthropological filmmaking, and it's being directed in primarily a, a documentary fashion by both the Inni uh, mm-hmm. early on, and then by Indigenous filmmakers independently. But at the same time, you're also examining the effect of this filmmaking itself as a subject of anthropological uh, inquiry. And right. I, is what I was interested in there is is a uh, what is the, the the significance of of looking at these particular practices and. Why maybe have they not been so successful, as you point out, in garnering as much outside interest, especially not to say, say nothing of of internal interest from the community, um, mm-hmm. as they might have been?
0: Well, that's that's a, um, a a big question in the sense that it's hard to really. I think it's hard to pin down exactly why. I mean, one one clear problem is access to you know it's still a very I was just talking to one of the Tamax guys um, who lives in France now over Skype, and he says, you know, video is still the patito feo, the ugly duckling of all these of all these arts. Um, but also a lot of this work is looks really different than what people are used to seeing, um, and it needs a little bit of introduction, you know, to general audiences. Now, there is a very robust circuit of Native American film festivals at which, you know, this, these material play. Um, and so it's not totally unknown. And there are several websites also in Canada. There's a fantastic one, Isuma TV in Nunavut, um, in Glulik. Anyway, and they have a lot of stuff from uh, Latin America on there as well. So the work is out there. But, um, you know, maybe it's just not general appeal. You know what I mean? Although there's some – it's not all documentary. You know, it's it, in, in Oaxaca, it's definitely – Took that trajectory, and I think coming out of the Eni, it had that sort of moment where it was created as a documentary format, sort of as it's as a reality that had been under. Reflected or misrepresented, and so here it is in documentary form, sort of a truth, a relationship with truth, and reestablishing truth. Um, But there's some wonderful fictions as well that have come out of this work. It kind of depends on the individual maker if they sort of have a propensity towards telling stories or to, you know, for documentary making. there are film festivals within Mexico that are also, you know, having a lot of success. There's one in Michoacán in Morelia that show, consistently shows um, work by Native artists in Mexico. And then you've got Sundance that has sort of a traditional sidebar dedicated to Native producers. It's still hard to cross those borders. A lot of times I have a lot of conversations about that, about how given – the um, the connections that a lot of Native people have historically, as well as culturally, um, north and south, there's still a lot of borders to cross in order to get the work to play. You know, equally up and down. Um, I don't know if that answers your question a little bit.
1: No, I think so. Um, yeah. When you when you characterize overall uh, indigenous <laughs> media um, that you're talking about in these cases, what's coming out of the the innie and Um, being adopted by various indigenous groups, you're describing something which, which, as you said, is kind of uneasily and incompletely integrated into the communities in which it's being practiced. Mm -hmm. One reason that it's had a lot of trouble catching on in some cases or becoming fully established, um, especially as video. Whereas you contrast this with the use of video and media more generally by the participants in the Zapatista uprising in the mm. early 90s, a kind of an ongoing media movement, where media is very much integrated into this kind of revolutionary or uh, you know, resistance ideal of the group. And, and could, you, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the Zapatista use of, of media in this case? Because I know that's also one of the more well-known examples of indigenous media use in Mexico during this period.
0: Right. Well. Well. First, I just want to also um, reinforce or, or not forget to mention that it's just pragmatically a very expensive thing to do. Um, you know, when you're already struggling for basic resources, you know, to make video is kind of crazy, right? When you've got, you know, you're waking up at four in the morning to go tend your field, and you've got, you know, I mean, just think about your your you know your full life you know, dedicated to your family, your kids, your community, your field, your, your animals. And then on top of that, trying to make video, it's a lot to ask of anyone. Right. right. Uh, and it's it, a lot of the. That's why the teachers and, and young people have really been drawn to it um, in general. Right. Cause they sort of have a kind of creative um, interest in doing that kind of work. Um, but in any case, the, um, I think it's a, it's, well, first of all, you can't have a book about indigenous media in Mexico and not talk about the Chapas Media Project. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a very successful project. It's very important, I think, part of the, um, not so much the, the beginning of the revolution, but the sustained, sort of, um, active revolutionary life that folks in Chapas are still living. Um, so that now media is incorporated into the different regions, into the different, um, uh, they're not called caracoles anymore. I'm forgetting that word right now. But in any case, into the regions they have media centers in each of the areas. Um, and it's a project that came in sort of well thought out as part of a revolutionary project. And if you remember from the beginning, the Zapatista movement, when they first sort of became, you know, launched their their revolution, it, they were very focused on media, right? They took over two radio stations, they were online immediately, um, and they had a very sort of prolific relationship with international um, media journalists, right? So from the get-go that has been incorporated into their social project, and it just had a much clearer um sort of um, way of using media, what their project was in in terms of how media served their project was was very clear. That's not to say that teaching community folks how to use these these materials didn't have its problems as well like uh, Alex Halkin who was one of the founders would relate to me that at first a lot of these people didn't think they could use the material because all they saw were people with video cameras always had these big international credentials hanging around their neck and they thought well that's that's not something you know we can use and so it was you had to sort of you know, break down those barriers and say, no, you can buy this camera at a store and anyone can use it. And so and and here it is. This is for you, you know, get going. And um, but it had a very clear directive. Um, and it was also what I talk about in that chapter is there was a, um, a system of social consensus that underpins the Zapatista revolution. Um, and how they organize civilly in terms of all the, the, the sympathizers that today live in, you know, autonomous municipal areas in Chiapas that didn't necess- didn't have a parallel in, in Oaxaca, for example, right? That sort of its, um, emphasis on consensual decision-making wasn't there. And so you weren't involving a community, you weren't part of a rotating system of authorities that had the video camera. there were more sort of individuals that expressed an interest in it. So I think this the the system that the Chapas Media Project used was based on this social consensual decision making process that had a, has had a lot more success. And they, they're also very dependent on the U.S. counterpart, right? It's right. always been conceived as a binational project. Um, and that's a lot of times where the funding comes from as well as, well as a, a distribution. And that's not something that's going to go away. That's part of, part of the project. They're less dependent on it now, I think, than they were in the first, you know, 10 years or so, but it's still part of the project.
1: So normally um, in these uh... – New Books Network podcast, we'd ask you what you're doing next as our, our last subject. But it's quite clear that this is an ongoing story, that some of these groups, while they may not be producing video as much as they used to be, are still producing video and are still interested in media production more generally, and that you've been continuing to look into this. So I want to ask, first off, what is the current state or the state of uh, indigenous video, indigenous media going into the 21st century?
0: Well, it, um, it might not be at least in Mexico, there might not be as many different communities producing, but there are still pockets of very robust production. Um, and some of the folks that were trained sort of in the beginning of the nineties are still growing as, as artists and as video makers. Um, and, and some of their work is, is going more mainstream, for example, um, and then you've got Okoleawa, which is still going strong. They've um, moved into some television production for um, you know national television production, which I think is a, is really great because they've been able to maintain this quality of indigenous video that repairs that that fissure, I call it between the expressive parts of culture and the sociopolitical parts of culture. So folks on, you know na- watching television will learn that. This this group in I don't know Guerrero Mexico um, that they might only know through their through their craft because they recognize that particular craft um, actually that the clay that that craft is made from is in an area that's about to be flooded by a hydroelectric dam project and they would be they'd be ruined because not just because they won't make the craft but because their ancestors are buried there you know so it just really takes on this. Was able to deliver this understanding of indigenous people as alive as present as protagonists in their own lives as a control over their w- own resources um, and they were able in fact to stave off the building of the dam um, for a number of years not just because of this program but so they've moved into television production um, but and and for example in tama and um, the Tamix guys while well, they're really not producing i mean they do radio one of the guys does a lot of local music uh work he's sort of a band manager and um goes to lots of regional festivals mostly for music um and they're not doing much video production but they have this archive as i was saying and they are really interested in digitizing it because it's literally perishing it's you know a lot of the analog tapes are are getting moldy they're just you know they're they're destroying in getting destroyed in poor uh storage conditions um and but they don't want to see it disappear um, and at the same time, they want to give it over. It's like you know, this it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to our community. So they're looking for a way to start playing it again, to start screening it again. And they've created this wonderful documentary about their their work. And they're really looking for a way to say, you know, here's here's our archive. You know, this belongs to the, to the community. Um, I think enough time has passed since 2000 when they had that very sort of tumultuous year and the community sort of rejected them um, where they can come back around and say, Hey, look, you know, we're not necessarily who we were as an organization, but what are we going to do with this treasure that we have? And they've kept it. They've built, you know, cabinets for it. They store it in a particular location. They try and keep it clean. But, you know, we're talking about a mountain communities that have very you know, harsh climate sometimes, and these are not optimal preservation conditions for any material like that. So that's why, um, you know, it's, it's really great for me that I began this archive project, and they also began their own digitization project. Now we're working together, and so they are providing pilot material for the archive. And the archive is... Um, the idea of it is to have an online living um, archive that people can access. Sort of the primary constituents being the native communities themselves, because, like I was saying earlier, sometimes they don't have access to this material. And I think it'd be great to have access for the local school systems to, you know, go. I mean, they're all connected now. Sometimes their um, their access to the internet is not as robust as you know in other places, but by and large, they're all connected. I mean, I have Facebook with you know the kids of all these guys pretty frequently frequently. Um, and so to have this material online, I think would be a great resource for the community and for all of us. Right. And so, um, the idea is to preserve and conserve the stuff that was created in the 19s and then 1990s, as well as sort of begin to, you know, create a space where new material can be uploaded, new, fresh interviews can be, can add sort of metadata and contextualization for the material. And then it can be kind of a, a mapping of this extensive social network of media producers that are connected in Latin America that meet at these film festivals, but, you know, work year round, um, a place for them to deposit material. So that's, that's what I've been working on, um, lately.
1: Right. And, uh, are you moving forward with any research on indigenous radio, different subjects? Um, where are you looking for, uh, I guess for your next book?
0: Yeah, well, I think that the the work with the archive might produce some ideas for the next book, because it's going to be a lot more about um, sort of the digital environments in these communities. But But this curiosity that I've had about the the comparative relationship between radio and video is something that I want to develop uh, into a book. And also, I think it will allow me, uh, give me a way to begin to look at women's roles in video production. In particular, it's something that I didn't do much in the book at all and I I think needs to be done. Um, And radio has been much more participatory in that sense. And I think women find themselves more attracted to it. And so I want to understand that, and and what is it about the technology? What is it about the visual, you know, versus the oral? Um, and also uh, just to look at the different developments of the two the two media in these in this context in Mexico. So I, and that would require new research to go down and and really sort of dig in at the the radio stations. There's a lot. Radio has experienced a, a big resurgence in Oaxaca, in particular, after the. 2006 social uprising a lot of communities felt the urgency to have their own radio station to be able to communicate with each other and it's considered an old technology right but it's it's totally one of the most popular ones so i think it needs to be looked at with the same kind of sort of complexity that i tried to look at video so those two things kind of is what is what i've what i'm working on now
1: well, I think that's uh, all we have time for today. Um, Erica, it's been great talking to you, and good Thank luck you. with, your, with your great work.
0: Thank you.